Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello and welcome to the revamped Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. Here's why you should tune in today to today's show. Cashing out before the bankruptcy, a bombshell report says the Celsius CEO withdrew $10 million before it went bust. Plus, we'll do a deep dive into the state of crypto right now. Daniel Roberts, editor-in-chief of Decrypt Media, will join us live. And as always, we got key takeaways at the end. Stay tuned for that. I'm Nico Bruga, and as always, we got Ash Bennington. Definitely some exciting changes this week. We got a new time, live interviews, five days a week, all at 12 p.m. Eastern. So subscribe to Real Vision Crypto. It's free. And if you're on YouTube watching, don't forget to hit that smash button, subscribe, and hit the bell. Now let's jump right into the latest price action. Entering a new month, Bitcoin ended September down 3%, according to BitcoinMonthlyReturn.com. September has indeed been a negative month for BTC in the last five straight years. However, there is good news, we hope. October historically is more positive for Bitcoin than September. BTC was up in October seven of the last nine years. Indeed, Bitcoin's price appears to be stable right now, which is significant considering the wider market turmoil. In fact, it's up slightly on a seven-day basis, trading in the high $18,000 to the low $20,000 range the past couple of days. Ash, what's going on with Ethereum? Ethereum price is also stable, trading at around $1,300 right now. Unlike BTC, though, it's down uh, on the trailing seven-day basis. But I guess given the macro turmoil, uh, Nico, it could be worse. Absolutely. Very well said. As for other tokens we're seeing, there's big moves in Luna Classic. Binance is burning unconfirmed number of tokens, but the price is still a far cry from the highs of $100 before the Terra Luna meltdown. Now on to today's top stories. Sources cited by the Financial Times say Alex Minchinsky, CEO of Celsius Network, the bankrupt crypto lender, cashed out $10 million in May, just weeks before customer accounts were frozen on June 12th. Hundreds of thousands of people were unable to withdraw money, and the company filed for bankruptcy in July with a $1.2 billion hole in finances. Indeed, Minchinsky just resigned last week, and his spokesman tells FT, Minchinsky still has about $44 million locked in Celsius. Says Celsius, Machinsky withdrew a percentage of crypto in his account and say what the withdrawal was disclosed in bankruptcy proceedings. This withdrawal was also mostly used to pay taxes as Machinsky continues to work on a recovery plan for Celsius. Ash, the story will not go down well with a lot of people. What do you make of this? 
Now, well, let's start with the obvious. Obviously, it's not a great headline for Alex Mashinsky. Uh, I read the FT story over the weekend. His team says that the withdrawal was scheduled very often uh, in cases where you have, for example, uh, insiders selling stock. That will be a scheduled transaction. Uh, according to the FT, this story uh, was uh, this this withdrawal was scheduled uh, based on statements from um, Alex or Alex's team. Look, we're going to have to wait and see here, but I want to give a little bit of context on generally the way bankruptcy works, the way bankruptcy courts work. Every transaction will undergo an enormous amount of scrutiny right now. So it's not as though uh, this is something that is not going to be viewed uh, very closely by the courts. Uh, I should say that there's a law in place here in the United States that clawbacks, meaning the ability to disgorge funds from executives to pull back compensation uh, within 90 days of a bankruptcy is in effect. So that's obviously a factor here. We'll have to see whether or not these funds get clawed back or not. Uh, obviously, it's going to be something that we're going to be watching closely here. Uh, speaking of which, the next hearing is this coming Thursday. So hopefully we're going to get some new information, some additional news flow as some of those public filings come out, Nico. Absolutely. And we'll be keeping a close eye on this story. And depending on when that uh, court appears, um, that court uh, happens on Thursday, we will cover it on Thursday or Friday's episode this week. In other news, Coinbase suffered a major outage uh, just yesterday, this Sunday. They were unable to take payments or would take withdrawals from U.S. bank accounts. The issue lasted for about six hours. It was eventually fixed, and the company says funds were safe. But some on Twitter are saying that they were unaware of the issues and attempted to make multiple deposit and withdrawals. No reason has yet been given. So, Ash, thankfully, all is good now, but definitely an anxious few hours for Coinbase customers in the U.S. What do you make of this? Yeah, absolutely. I was following this story earlier this morning. According to the tweet from Coinbase, this was a problem with their ACH feed. That's automated clearinghouse. This is the sort of digital electronic method by which banks effectively clear checks and do some types of transactions in the United States. This technology dates back to the early 1970s, uh, before I was born, to give you an idea of just how antiquated this stuff is. Uh, look, there are two basic mechanisms with which money transfers are done in the United States, ACH and Fedwire. ACH uh, is for uh, net settlement Fed wires for gross settlement, meaning those transactions are irrevocable. I know this is a little bit in the weeds here in terms of the way that the banking system works, but I think it's important for people to understand this was not a Web3 problem. This was not a, a sort of back-end server problem over at Coinbase. This was a challenge with the interface with ACH. Uh, so obviously, this is a different type of, uh, of failure of technology than we typically see. Talking of which, uh, we should talk about the Solana outage uh, over the weekend. Uh, this is a, a challenge that has plagued Solana for some time, obviously a very different kind of problem, not an ACH issue, more of a, a traditional server or validator issue. Uh, obviously, these are both stories that we are following uh, for the time being, though. That's the news coming out of Coinbase, Nico. Thank you for that. Uh, thank you for that, Ash. And I actually got a wild one for you. Remember Elon Musk's attempt to buy Twitter for $44 billion? He backed out. Twitter sued him. Well, private text messages released as part of the court proceedings contain some really juicy information, as first reported by Business Insider. Apparently, FTX CEO Sam Bankman-Fried, otherwise known as SBF, was potentially interested in buying Twitter. His advisor told Musk that SBF could contribute eight to fifteen billion dollars. In a later separate exchange, this was revised up to $5 billion. Musk and SBF exchanged some messages, with Musk later cooling off on a part, potential partnership as he didn't want to have a, quote, laborious blockchain debate and dismiss blockchain Twitter as not possible. Ash, lots of interesting nuggets in these text messages. What do you make of this? 
yeah, you know, a billion here, a billion there. Before you know it, it adds up to some real money. Some great sort of context on this story. There was a quote that came out uh, from Elon Musk. Quote, does Sam actually have 3B liquid? Close quote. Uh, I wish I had 3B liquid, but it is an interesting story. Obviously, these are two great tech luminaries uh, talking about Twitter, uh, talking about the laborious blockchain debate. I think it's probably worth pointing out that Twitter is obviously a, a platform that I love. I spend a lot of time on it, but it is very much a Web2 platform and it will be interesting to see what this looks like next maybe uh i don't know maybe jack dorsey can build the uh, web3 twitter on the lightning network <laughs> and speaking of twitter influencers and all of that jazz in the last few hours the u.s regulator of the sec announced charges against celebrity kim kardashian the sec says kardashian failed to disclose that she was paid two hundred and fifty thousand dollars to publish a post on Instagram on her Instagram account about Emacs tokens, which the SEC called the crypto asset security being offered by Ethereum Max. The SEC this morning says Kardashian agreed to settle and has paid 1.26 million in penalties. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now, Ash, I'm going to leave it there with today's top news because I know you have a very exciting conversation with Dan that we'll get to right now. Ash, feel free to take it away. I'm going to be watching on the other side and we'll be back in a bit with some key takeaways. So over to you. See you soon, Nico. By the way, we should probably point out, importantly, that when it's SEC, these are civil charges, not criminal charges. SEC refers to DOJ uh, in the event that there are criminal charges. No indication that that has happened here. We are joined right now by Daniel Roberts, Editor-in-Chief at Decrypt Media. Welcome, Dan. Hey, good to be back on, Ash, and uh, pumped for you guys on doing a daily crypto show. Well, we're, we're stoked to have you here on our very first day. Hey, there's a lot to talk about. And, um, you know, it's also important that we dive into recent stuff, I think, with a, a little bit of a glass half full. Because if you were just looking at the markets and the price right now, and there are a lot of people out there who do, and they're able to point and say, see, see, it's all a joke. It's all in the toilet. Uh, you would think that there is nothing to be positive about in crypto. And that's not the case, I would say. All right. So I'll throw it back to you, Dan. What are you positive about? Well, uh, I ran into you at Masari Mainnet, which was a conference the week before last. We were there with a big presence. Almost our whole reporting team was there. That was three days the week before last. And then last week, so we had two conferences in a row, we were at Chainlink SmartCon, a little bit of a different vibe, more developer heavy. But it, yeah. um, there were a couple of things that I kept hearing in the interviews we were conducting. And at both of those conferences, we had nice decrypt um, you know, anchor desks set up to do taped interviews. So quick plug, those are all... Uh, on our site now. Shameless plug. <laughs> you got to do it, right? <laughs> from people is that DeFi is expanding and evolving beyond just make more money. And I've always said that that is going to have to happen because any bullishness and excitement around DeFi, you know, for the first couple of years, especially since DeFi summer, famously in 2020, all the excitement was Great new way to make more money. You know, take this token, stake it or put it into this liquidity pool and you'll get more of this other token and you'll make money on money. 
And that was nice in a bull market where it was like up only rah, rah, rah. But especially during a bear market, there is some truth to what people always say, which is they say, oh, we're heads down and building. You know, it's a great time to build. Even though that's a cliche, it's true. And I think you're starting to hear about use cases for DeFi that actually solve a problem. And after all, I've been saying about crypto for a decade, it needs to actually solve a problem, right? That's why people ask, well, what's the killer app? What's the killer use case? It can't just be that Bitcoin is just digital gold. You buy it and hold on to it. I mean, I always point back to the white paper. It was supposed to be a whole payment rails. So number one, there's optimism around DeFi use cases. And then number two, even though there's so much negativity when it comes to regulation, and we can and we should dive deeper into that, uh, we also heard from you know people advocating for crypto policy in DC that they're confident that there will be an actual crypto law in the next year, maybe not before 2023. But people like Kristen Smith from the Blockchain Association, you know, they think we're going to get a law on the books. And of course, the true DGENs would say, well, I don't want any kind of law, but it would be better if there's something, you know, something concrete rather than just, you know, um, what do they call it? In, um, regulation by enforcement is the popular phrase. Of yeah. Don't really know what's okay and what isn't. We don't hear anything until the SEC comes knocking on our door and says, you did an unregistered securities sale three years ago. And now you either need to give back the money or pay us a big fine. So if we were to get an actual crypto law in the US, even if crypto people wouldn't like every detail of it, that would be a real positive, I think. Well, this is the idea that you hear about the uh, desire for regulatory clarity, particularly from institutional players in the traditional finance space who are dying uh, to get something uh, in terms of clarity so that they can get a sense of of, of what the uh, good actors should be doing. This is what I hear all the time from people in traditional finance, which is we want to be good actors. Give us the guidelines. Give us the, the rails uh, within which to act. You know, this idea, the opposite phase that we're in right now is this regulation by enforcement. And if you talk to people inside the space when they're complaining about it, they'll basically say uh, regulators tell you when you've crossed the line, but they don't tell you where the line is. A hundred percent. And two thoughts there I want to mention at SmartCon, I had an interview with a, an interesting guy from Balcony Dow. And you know, this is a traditional real estate guy. They are doing something that people have been talking about for years that kept you know, being discussed as theoretical, but now it's actually happening. And that is doing real estate on blockchain. So they're basically fractionalizing investment in a real world physical building. It's in New Jersey, disappointingly, too bad, not Manhattan. But the first building they're doing is one in New Jersey. And they are going to allow people to invest, buy a stake in this building, and the investment is in the form of an NFT. Now they have a token. They're waiting to launch the token until the SEC approves it. Here's the fresh part. This guy from Balkan Dow, his name is John Belitsky. He said, oh, our token is a security, 100%. You don't hear that often. Instead, it's crypto people saying, it's not a security. It has real utility. So it's a utility token. Remember when people tried to call it utility token for a while instead of something right. as if that would keep the regulators away. They don't care what you call it. It's clear that Gary Gensler thinks almost everything other than Bitcoin is a security. So Belitsky of Balcony Dow is making the point that, you know, people in the industry keep saying, we don't have regulatory clarity. We want regulatory clarity. You just mentioned that phrase. It's, it's the hot phrase of the day. This guy was saying, we do have regulatory clarity. Most people just don't like it. It's clear what the regulatory guidelines are. And if you don't like it and want to flout it, fine. But, you know, we're waiting until we can actually, 
you know, hold the SEC's hand and say, yep, this is a security and register it under Reg A or Reg D. You have a few different options there. Famously, the other project that did that. Well, those are those. It's important to mention that those the the, the Reg A and Reg A plus those are exempted securities. Uh, those are a carve out outside of the uh, traditional registration process that securities have to go through. I know that this gets very sort of technical and in the weeds in terms of the legal and compliance aspect of it, but it's important for people to understand uh, what we're talking about here. So the idea behind securities tokens uh, is that they are going to be compliant with existing SEC and other regulatory frameworks that are currently in place in the United States. One of the things that you'll hear a great deal about uh, if you're relatively new to this or if you're on the tech side and you're just starting to wade into the legal, regulatory, and compliance component is the Howey test. Uh, the Howey test is a, I think, dates back to the 19, uh, 1940s or 50s. Uh, it was about orange groves, I think, in California. And the idea was that SEC ruled that if there's an investment of money in a common enterprise with a reasonable expectation of profit, to be derived from the efforts of others, then what you've got is a security. And it doesn't matter if you call it a utility token. It doesn't matter if you what metaphors you use, according to the SEC, which is the relevant uh, regulator in this case. What you've got on your hands is a security if you meet those four prongs of the Howey test. Yeah, and, and you and I are definitely on the same brain length because that was the other thing that I was going to bring up when you mentioned the whole, you know, we don't have regulatory clarity. I mean, people complained about the Howey test, and in fact, at Mainnet, I spoke to Kara Calvert, who is Coinbase's U.S. policy chief. She had a what I thought was a juicy soundbite, which was, we'd love to get away from Howie. And I kind of thought, well, good luck with that, because now the SEC has decided that they think that test, as a litmus test, is still pretty good. Now, it's from 1946, and people point to that and say, this is ridiculous. It's 80 years old. But the thing is, when you describe it, and, and you described it correctly, and I've, I've studied the Howie test, you know, it actually sounds pretty reasonable to me. You know, that's their definition. And a lot of these tokens people launch, call it whatever you want. You know, if you apply the Howey test, well, are the investors buying it because they want to use it in your ecosystem and actually use your crypto product? Hmm. In those cases, no. They're buying the token because they think this looks like a good thing where token will go up. You know, when token, you know, when coin go up. And they are hoping that the price will go up because of the efforts of you, the platform, block right. company, or smart contracts DAP that is launching the token. Looks like a security based on how we test. So, you know, Dan, listen, clarity, I think. If you're creating things that are securities or de facto securities and your claim is that you want to go get away from the Howey test, that's like falling out of your chair and saying that you want to get away from the laws of gravity. Good luck. <laughs> yeah. And of course, you know, it's always good when we can remind your viewers of, of very recent news about what we're discussing about a month ago, or maybe it was already two months ago because time is meaningless lately. Um, the SEC basically said as an aside, in a lawsuit against this ICO pumper, Ian Alina, that it thinks the following nine tokens are securities. And eight of the nine are listed on Coinbase. So Coinbase responded in a blog post and its chief legal officer said, well, we don't list securities. And I, I thought that was very funny. It's like, okay, just because you say that doesn't mean the SEC will go, oh, okay, well, you don't list securities. I guess they're not securities. You can say it till the cows come home or till the cows come back to the Howie Citrus farm. But right. SEC thinks those tokens are securities. Binance responded, and I think was trying to troll Coinbase and quickly delisted the one of those nine tokens that Binance listed for trading. 
Hey, let me just say two things. So first of all, uh, a little bit of a note on what some of the sort of non-security tokens or what a true utility token might look like. For me, I think about ENS. This is just one example. I went and registered uh, my name, ashbennington.eth, and I got an airdrop of Ethereum tokens. I didn't invest money uh, at all. I was just airdropped these tokens. Uh, and the idea is that it's going to be something that you can use within the Ethereum ecosystem. So that's just one potential context. And there are lots of folks who are talking about, and I don't want to sound like I'm being negative on utility tokens, just when utility tokens clearly violate the Howey test, it seems pretty clear that they are, in fact, securities. But I want to zoom the camera up here a little bit to just give a little bit broader context. For me, and I think we were talking about this a little bit offline, uh, off camera, this idea that I think that probably 2023 and maybe 2024 are going to be the year that we start hearing a lot, and I mean a lot, about regulatory compliance and legislative actions around the crypto space. What we've been talking about here uh, is this idea of securities regulation, SEC. You know, for me, Dan, that's only one bucket. This is the idea that, secu that securities uh, regulation comes out of SEC uh, for investor protection. But I think that's actually perhaps the least material and least problematic bucket uh, into which crypto regulatory issues are going to fall. Let me list the other three for you. AML, KYC, SAR, this is anti-money laundering, uh, know your clients, this is suspicious activity reports. These are all things that traditional finance institutions like banks do around tax evasion. This is something that is a significant, significant uh, it's a point that we are going to hear the federal government weigh in on, I believe, as we start to see more and more uh, activity happening in digital assets. Number three, OFAC compliance. This is the Office of Foreign Asset Controls. Boy, you want to talk about a deal breaker. The idea uh, that nations that, for example, are non-signatories, the non-proliferation treaty, could potentially monetize uh, nation states through cryptocurrency without regulation and restriction, that is a potentially enormous, enormous issue for nation states. I suspect that we may be seeing this all coming to a head, and we can talk about this in a little more detail with Ethereum post-merge. In the staking world, you're going to have U.S. corporations, regulated, uh, you know, publicly traded U.S. companies with U.S. persons as directors and officers operating stake pools uh, that are not going to be censorable. This is something that is going to be potentially a major regulatory showdown, and I'll throw in one more. Uh, the fourth is sovereign sovereignty over the money supply. So in democracies, uh, we have independent central banks that are appointed by regulators. Elsewhere in the world, they just have independent central banks or dependent central banks that are appointed by the party, for example. This is really a key issue because what we're talking about here is the sovereignty over the money supply. If you think about why central banks exist, it's primarily to mediate two primary uh, macroeconomic variables, on the one hand, inflation, and on the other hand, employment and growth. It doesn't seem likely to me that nation states are going to be giving up their prerogative to regulate those macroeconomic variables anytime soon. This is obviously something that's quite an issue here in 2022. We're at eight plus percent CPI. We've got uh, what looks like a recession just looming over the horizons. Dan, there's a lot of stuff, a lot of stuff out there. Uh, what are your thoughts? Well, I agree with most of what you said. Now, of course, it's a little bit of a parlor game with trying to predict just which agency or set of rules is going to become really important. You're certainly right to draw attention to a few things other than just the SEC. Now, the SEC gets the lion's share of the attention and the headlines. And, you know, I, I love mentioning this, but back when Gary Gensler was first named the new SEC chair, crypto people mistakenly at first thought, this will be great because this guy taught a course about blockchain at MIT. This must be a blockchain guy. He's going to be crypto friendly. Well, that has not been the case so far. Just because he knows about the tech doesn't mean that he thinks it's so wonderful. Uh, he has said that he thinks, you know, blockchain is going to revolutionize the financial industry. He would just say, I'm sure, 
I'm not anti-crypto. I just want to protect investors, which is our job. I want to keep people from losing their shirts. So right. not just about the SEC, although later- and, it's, and it's not just about investor protection either, right? I mean, this is uh, AML, KYC, SAR is outside of uh, Gary Gensler's remit, outside the remit of uh, SEC, and outside the remit of investor protection. This is something that is incredibly core to the uh, ability of nation states to collect revenue in the form of taxes. Yeah, and I saw a T-shirt, by the way, at Bitcoin Miami uh, two years ago that said, KYC and AML are the crimes. Okay, okay, buddy. But I was just going <laughs> to, in addition to the various factors you discussed, two agencies you didn't mention, the CFTC and the yeah. also important uh, you know, regulatory bodies, well, in the IRS's case, you know, we're talking about agencies, bureaus, but taxes are going to be really important. And then in the case of the CFTC, there's been a fascinating land grab that I think is heating up right now which is, you know, who's going to actually get jurisdiction over crypto? Quite recently, Gary Gensler basically said, I'm fine, you know, pushing Bitcoin regulation over to the CFTC as a commodity. And the implication, which he didn't finish the sentence, was we, the SEC, want everything else. We want ETH and all the tokens built on top of Ethereum. You know, you mentioned earlier your, your ENS, your Ethereum domain name. I want to make sure all your viewers understand it. It's a cool thing to explain to non-crypto people. Yes. I'll send you a token including an NFT. So this is how companies like Budweiser and Visa ended up with, am I allowed to say dick pics on this show? Um, you know, those big brands were sent dick pics in their Ethereum wallet, because once you share publicly your, your wallet address, anyone can send you anything. And here's in a regulatory sense, why that's so fascinating. Recently, when the US DOJ sanctioned Tornado Cash, which was an Ethereum coin mixer that helps you mask where your transactions are coming from, a number of companies interpreted that as, well, we need to no longer allow users with any wallets that have ever transacted with Tornado Cash. And a lot of people, some trolls, smart trolls, pointed out how silly that is by dusting certain prominent people's wallets, i.e. sending them tokens that they didn't ask for, they didn't choose to receive or choose to invest in, tokens that had been from Tornado Cash. So what that demonstrated was, how ridiculous would it be for the government to say, you know, anyone who's ever received a certain token is now not in compliance and is breaking the law, especially considering, and I think most people don't understand this, that anyone can send you a token without asking you if they have your wallet address. Boy, Dan, that's absolutely right. Spot on and such a good point. Uh, these are just some of the challenges that we start to begin to think about in this world that we've just really never seen before. And by the way, you mentioned CFTC and IRS. Uh, there are a whole alphabet agency soup uh, that may be looming just beyond our ken right now. I think about like something like OCC, FDIC. As this technology begins to expand, as the uh, adoption rates continue to increase, this becomes much more interesting to traditional regulators. By the way, uh, one point that was really interesting were Jerome Powell's comments, I think, last week uh, about basically urging uh, that this is something that we need to get the right legislation for. But he said at this time, there doesn't seem to be any systemic risk to the banking system caused by cryptocurrency. This idea here uh, is that unlike the 2008 period where MBS, ABS, mortgage-backed securities, asset-backed securities essentially caused uh, the traditional plumbing of the financial system uh, to fail, uh, what he's saying right now is, it's okay, we don't really see that with DeFi, but hey, guess what? The implication there is that if there is a moment where they do see those types of uh, crossovers, those spillover effects, those potential uh, spillovers that could lead to uh, you know, problems within the banking system, they're going to jump in. So the Fed is in this game as well. A hundred percent. Just, you know, you just wait. Although um, back to my, you know, DeFi optimism, of course, from DeFi people, 
uh, you're hearing them say, oh, we think that certain prominent people actually see value in DeFi. You know, for example, Jamie Dimon, who once famously said, you know, Bitcoin is tulip bulbs and it's a fraud. And then he later walked that back and said, I'm sorry for saying that, but clearly he believes it. He has more recently indicated that DeFi actually interests him. So people are excited about that. But you're right. I mean, watch out for the Fed. There's another thing, too. You mentioned the FDIC. Uh, quick, quick related tangent, which is a lot of these crypto lenders and earlier, you know, Nico and Ash were talking about the latest about Celsius, you know, CEO Mashinsky and his um, pretty bad looking actions, even if they were pre-planned. A lot of these lenders, well, surprise, they weren't FDIC insured. And a lot of regular folks on Main Street, they just want to see when they're dealing with any kind of financial institution, they want to see that seal that says FDIC approved, right? And right. crypto things, even the ones that say, don't worry, don't worry, we're safe, they still have to say, mm, but not FDIC approved, which I think alienates a lot of folks still. But, you know, Dan, that's still the case in traditional finance. By the way, we should define some of these terms. FDIC is the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. Uh, this is the uh, this is the government entity that backs U.S. deposits at traditional banking accounts. OCC is the Office of Comptroller of Currency, also a primary regulator of U.S. banks. But look, when you have a bank, for example, that offers uh, securities as well, when you buy a security, when you buy uh, 100 shares of Facebook, uh, that's not FDIC insured either. Uh, so that this is in some ways you could say uh, kind of a, a bifurcation or division that's already inherent in the system. It doesn't seem like it's hard to believe that crypto uh, would ever be FDIC insured unless unless uh, we see something in the way of stable coins that become regulated and that have some capacity uh, to have some type of uh, either FDIC or other related protections. Um, you know, there's something called SIPIC as well as we're throwing in all of these uh, all of these acronyms out here uh, that uh, that protect uh, against insolvency in the event of uh, of a collapse of the brokerage firm. So that if you're uh, if you're you know your brokerage firm collapses, you still get your uh, securities at the end of the day. Uh, so there are lots of uh, sort of alphabet soup here, which which sort of presupposes or or leads us to this question is, are we going to see a bifurcation more broadly, Dan, of the crypto space between the regulated and the unregulated? I mean, when you go up to the Ethereum uh, Foundation homepage and you command F for the phrase censorship resistance, you just get a lot of hits on that. This is something that is very much inherent in the ethos of the crypto space, the idea that transactions cannot be censored. We talked about this a little bit uh, earlier in the show around uh, around stake pools. This really could be coming to a major head. The idea that you're going to have you're going to have uh, you know institutions, publicly traded companies with U.S. directors uh, and officers like uh, Coinbase, for example, operating stake pools. Um, Brian's jumped in on Twitter on this debate before and said that he essentially he'd essentially basically walk away uh, from staking rather than censor transactions at the protocol level. Boy, this is this is really quite a complicated time, isn't it? Yeah, it's going to be hugely important. You're right. And that's why it's so significant that most recently the SEC basically made clear that it views all Ethereum transactions as U.S.-based transactions because of, you know, the percentage of the validators that are in the U.S. I think. But Dan, wasn't wasn't that only like one line in one paragraph in one filing? I, I, I'm not clear about whether or not that's something that's broadly held at SEC and whether that's a point that they're going to pursue. I don't I mean, I don't think anybody is. So, the, but the crypto industry ash is famous for um, jumping on and freaking out industry wide. A line buried within, you know, a broader piece of um, a lawsuit or, or a different statement. You know, I mean, remember what happened when the entire industry thought it had to rally behind the definition of brokers because it thought that the new infrastructure bill was defining like every single right. miner from home, which of course they were never going to go after those folks. But this is what the industry does, you know. Um, no, I thought that was really significant. And, and look, 
the other thing I'd say here too, big picture, uh, the reason I was harping on people being concerned about FDIC, I'm probably inordinately interested in this because I'm a journalist and so I focus on the narratives, but I've been saying for years that there are some people who are just never gonna see crypto as trustworthy in any way. And some of those same people are in positions of great power politically. And you know, it doesn't matter how serious it gets. It doesn't matter how many trusted Wall Street institutions or hedge fund titans that people think are smart and trusted and legitimate. It doesn't matter how many of those folks change their tune and say, oh, we, we see crypto as a real thing. We see it as worthwhile. Certain people just say, you know, it exists outside the law. It's a rebel wild west. And the reason what we're discussing is like, of course you're right. Of course, in the years to come, there's only going to be a further split between the DGENs or the OGs, the people who the whole reason they love crypto and got into it back in 09, 2010, I first wrote about Bitcoin in 2011, was because they liked that it was outside government control. They liked that it was private, censorship resistant, you know, stay away regulators. And I think some of those folks still hope that the regulators will just go away. Well, that isn't going to happen. You know, and the split is going to be between that camp and the camp of mm, normies, tradfi, that actually are interested in crypto, but they want regulation. They're saying, yeah, bring it on, create safeguards, create right. so that we, a bank, can get involved and not look like suddenly we're hanging with the DGENs. Well, those camps are going to continue to clash. Coinbase is a great example. At this point, Coinbase are like the suits. You know, Coinbase to me looks more <laughs> as Uniswap. Send the tweets directly to Dan Roberts on that one. Coinbase <laughs> hasn't done a lot for the industry. I think it often doesn't get enough credit. It has, you know, it's it's involved in the the lawsuit around Tornado Cash. You know, it's fighting on behalf of the industry. But come on, you know, you go public, you, you basically want to be a crypto bank. I think Brian Armstrong once said, "We want to be the Goldman of of crypto." Or if he hasn't said it, they've said it with their with their actions and their you know reputation. Everybody wants to be the Goldman of crypto. I mean, every you know every large corporation that's involved in the space wants to be the Goldman of crypto. By the way, on TradFi, nobody in TradFi calls it TradFi. This is a straight up exonym. People in TradFi call it capital markets. I'm looking at our uh, at our stream here on the YouTube comments, and uh, Jeldon. 1980 has just wrote, they can be voted out. He's talking about uh, the people who are in charge. You know, there's an old joke in public policy circles, Dan, that you don't change people's minds. They just die. <laughs> you know, I actually try really hard not to be ageist when it comes to crypto. Uh, in fact, you know, years ago I said on something, you know, it's, it's the UX needs to change. It needs to get easier. And I said something like people of a certain age are not going to install a MetaMask wallet and buy some ETH and buy an NFT. And I got an angry email from someone saying, you know, I'm in my 70s and I use crypto. Great. So I hesitate about age, but but God knows, you know, <laughs> there's certain folks, maybe it's not just about age, but certain people who it's still just too hard, you know, to, to be tech savvy enough to use. Right. So that needs to change. And it applies to the politicians as well. A certain generation, they're just going to not be around anymore. So look to the younger. And by the way, some of the Dems who've been pro crypto, you know, it's not the case that it's always, you know, Republicans are friendly to crypto and the Dems are more anti, even though the most vocal, you know, angry anti crypto voices are people like Warren. And then it looks like Yellen. Um, some of the Dems who are in favor of crypto and crypto advocacy are the younger ones. You know, they're that's right. In the Senate. By the way, that's that's spot on, Dan. I think on all those points. Uh, certainly, it's true. Generally speaking, that we do see this 
beginning of a partisan split. It was nice that it was one of the few issues in the United States that didn't seem to be divided on partisan lines for some time there. Now uh, that's no longer the case. But by the way, listen, I have some friends who are who are uh, who are screaming progressives, who are socialists, in fact, who love crypto. Why? I think some of it is, as you suggest, it's 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 it is generational, uh, and it is something that is uh, is not fully shaken out yet. But I, I think that that people on the left, as well as uh, on the progressive left, as well as on the libertarian right uh, of of younger generations, are going to start to embrace this technology more. But but by the way, uh, to come back to your early point, where I also think you're spot on, the UI UX of crypto has got to change, or it's just not going to get broader adoption. That's not age-related. Uh, that's uh, just the fact that not everybody has a master's degree in computer science. Uh, and when you're looking at long sort of hexadecimal strings of characters, these are not things that are very friendly for users uh, to interact with. That's probably why we've got uh, something like ENS, because long alphanumeric strings uh, are not fun ways to interact with wallet addresses. Much easier to say, oh, I'll send it to danroberts.eth. Very simple, very clear for everyone. And and I think we're just at the beginning of this. Look, talking about age, I'm, I'm old enough to remember uh, when people uh, in the tech space complained about graphical user interfaces. They were like, oh, you know, if you want to interact with a computer, man, you got to know how to do things at the command line. Obviously, that was kind of an absurd take. It was something that people perhaps who had very sort of significant backgrounds in computer science and mathematics uh, enjoyed the power of, which is where we are right now in crypto, I should say. Uh, but the reality is to get broad-based adoption, you need these things to be user-friendly. Uh, and this is something that's, this is, a, I think, a longer sort of term debate that's happening within the space right now. You also need us uh, to figure out what the trade-offs are in terms of custodial wallets versus non-custodial wallets. You know, right now, if you have a million dollars in Bitcoin and you accidentally goof and send it to the wrong address, it's gone. Now, by the way, we should say that's a feature, not a bug. People in the space love the idea that it's irrevocable. That's part of what makes it so appealing. Uh, but, you know, when you're buying a cup of coffee, you don't want to accidentally fat finger it uh, and send your life savings to Starbucks. A hundred percent. And, um, you know, there's a lot there. First of all, it's not even just that, oh, you need to be a coder to understand. Even the things that people in crypto point to is pretty doable. It's quite a few steps to the point where I'm sometimes embarrassed and sheepish when I'm telling non-crypto friends, like, I've had people say to me, I'm ready to buy an NFT. What do I do? And unless they want to go to Top Shot, which, you know, got so popular because it was basically non-crypto, you know, you could just pay with dollars and never deal with blockchain, which, you know, true crypto people pointed to and said, well, that's lame. Other than that, if you wanted to go to, you know, OpenSea, Rarible, Zora, Foundation, I, I start saying, well, you need to have a little ETH. So first you need to go to an exchange, create an account, buy some ETH. Then you need to send the ETH to your MetaMask wallet or whatever is your Chrome crypto browser wallet of choice. We shouldn't just say MetaMask, there's Rainbow, there's others. Then you need to convert it to WETH, wrapped ETH. And then you need NFT side and pay. It's like, no, 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 no. I mean, I, I feel ridiculous even as I describe those steps. So yes, the UX needs to improve. I mean, that is for sure. And then in general, like, you know, as the industry grows, it can't be seen as the home of just hackers and, and weirdos. Now, of course, some of that is perception and not everyone can really be held responsible for changing that. But reputations and narratives will evolve over time if the industry is actually doing interesting things. And again, as I said at the beginning, solving real use cases. You know, you name dropped cup of coffee. For the longest time, that's been a criticism of Bitcoin. People say, well, I still can't really use it for a cup of coffee. And it's like, well, you wouldn't, would you, right? Like if you think it's gonna go up in price, why would you spend it on your cup of coffee? That's why it was so silly when yeah. they started saying, we'll accept Bitcoin as payment. No one took them up on it. 
I mean, unless your entirety of your wealth is in Bitcoin and you've held it since 09 and you have some to burn, fine. But for most people, you know, buying your cup of coffee with Bitcoin isn't going to be the point. Um, right. A, a faster settlement rail for much larger things, remittances. You know, that's why I think a company like Ripple is actually interesting. Now, let's see what happens with the SEC and Ripple's XRP token. Yeah, and by, by the way, this is a sort of a complex and nuanced issue here. This is about the conflict between the store value function of money and the medium of exchange function of money. Uh, and, and there are many people who are, are extremely enthusiastic in the Bitcoin space about Lightning to actually solve some of those problems. There's the capacity to potentially, potentially, I know that Jack Mallers and Strike are working on some similar things, uh, to instantaneously have transitions between US dollars uh, and Bitcoin so that you could, for example, buy a cup of coffee on the Lightning Network. But, you know, I think it's fair to point out that is very much sort of a future use case. We're not there yet. A hundred percent, we're not there yet. And in fact, um, Mark Cuban, especially last time I interviewed him, you know, he started the whole thing by saying, oh, people keep saying, once we have lightning, once we get lightning, it'll go mainstream. And he's like, mm, that hasn't really played out. Um, you know, I think you hear a lot about people talking about lightning with the potential. In fact, including uh, the company formerly known as Square, now called Block, uh, because they wanted to make their blockchain ambition so clear, a la Facebook and Meta, we spoke to two executives from Block at Mainnet, and both were saying, you know, check out our new Lightning feature inside Venmo, um, you know, uh, not Venmo, Cash App, I should say. You know, Venmo is PayPal and Braintree. Um, but, you know, the average, the average users of Cash App are going to continue to be unaware of Lightning Network and unaware of, you know, trying out that tool. But they sure do mention it a lot. We're not quite there yet. I love talking about the things that instead of being theoretical, they're here right now. You know, there are a lot of cool things already you can do in crypto right now. And I thought the Ukraine story was an example of that. I mean, objectively, crypto helped Ukraine. People sent crypto and, and set up DAOs, and they helped uh, Ukraine forces make purchases and get access to the funds faster. And I thought that was amazing, sort of regardless of your, of your geopolitics. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Yeah, lots of important points there. Dan, as we come to the conclusion of this segment, final thoughts, key takeaways that you'd like to leave our audience with. Well, I guess one thing, and I, I always say it, I mean, I've been saying it for years and years and years, but it's still true. And especially with all the negative rhetoric around regulation recently, it's more true than ever. Um, to me, table stakes, you know, a, a very minimum belief set. And you don't have to be a rah-rah, Bitcoin's going to be the reserve currency future, you know, to believe this, is that crypto is a real thing. It's going to continue to exist. It is here to stay. You know, I always have regular uh, friends, non-crypto friends, I'm sure you do too, Ash, who say, okay, I want to buy some, you know, crypto. What should I buy? And they say, usually it's like, should I buy Dogecoin? No. Now, I don't dispense investment advice. But what I do say, and I don't think this is very controversial, I just say the only things that for now I would guarantee will still exist in 10 years are Bitcoin and Ethereum. Now, I'm sure that offends some people. I, many, many other cryptocurrencies and tokens will, will continue to exist and succeed for sure. But I'm not going to pick winners and losers. But those two are advanced enough, mature enough, legitimate enough that I guarantee they will still exist in a decade. I believe that. And that doesn't mean I'm a crypto crazy. you know. So people who look at yet another bear cycle right now and they go, oh, crypto is done. It's dead. It's like, 
How can you say that it's dead when we saw 2013 and then 2017, uh, 2018, really? You'd have to be just ignoring uh, the news of the past. So things will eventually come back and people will keep building stuff and it's here to stay. And then yeah. regulation is really important. I mean, come on, man. You know, I, I, um, I think a lot of people two years ago when we were hearing negative regulation stuff would say, it's okay. You know, everyone's over, um, overreacting. Right now, lately, I don't think people are overreacting. I think what we're hearing from regulators is not great. Yeah. I, I love Bitcoin. I love Ethereum. But I never say the G word. When you work on a broker's desk, someone throws an orange at your head if you say guarantee. I'm not even saying buy them. I don't I don't give any investment advice, but I just think for sure the things will stick around. You know, people yeah. of ETH right now, they go, they go, ETH is gonna go to zero. It's never gone to zero. It's not, I don't think it's gonna go to zero. But you're right, there's no guarantees. Yeah, and it's great to have you here. And this is exactly why we wanted to have you on our very first show. Such a great pleasure. Stick around for a second if you can. I want to bring Nico back. Thank you. It was a great conversation to listen in on. Uh, you should see my uh, copious amount of notes. But uh, from what you guys talked about, here's what I've distilled it down to and the key takeaways for myself. Despite the market and price action, Dan is still positive about the space considering the expansion of DeFi during this crypto winter. Real DeFi use cases are emerging like Balcony DAO, which is using NFTs and blockchain technology to revolutionize real estate investment. But most importantly, regulation is the name of the game for crypto over the coming months and years. Indeed, according to Kristen Smith, the executive director of the Blockchain Association, we should expect a crypto law within the next year. While some DGENs might worry, this should actually help the overall health of the ecosystem. And indeed, the Howey test is here to stay, it seems, despite the fact that it's from 1946, not to mention AML, KYC, and SAR are still a prime factor when it comes to getting a clear regulation picture. Lastly, we can't forget about the IRS and the CFTC and the FDIC. We can expect more clarity around taxes as well as who gets jurisdiction over which uh, cryptos, i.e. Gensler wants everything other than BTC, while mainstream Main Street users want to see a FDIC stamp to feel safe. Doesn't matter how many folks change their tune, certain people will not adopt this new technology and these new currencies if it exists outside the law and it's the wild, wild west. All right. That was a lot, but Ash, Dan, did I forget anything or should we move on to uh, some crypto questions? I think you did great, uh, Nico. It, it's funny, it reminded me of, there's a trend on crypto Twitter of um, interns. Usually they're interns for companies or sometimes news sites, you know, Masari intern, and they tweet threads of notes from live conferences and their takeaways. I thought it was great. The one thing I'd quibble with, you mentioned my comments on Balcony now and you said revolutionize real estate investing. <laughs> You don't see, right? I mean, they would say they're revolutionizing it. Of course, every <laughs> platform company, NFT collection says they're revolutionizing. We'll see. I mean, very few things have actually revolutionized anything yet. <laughs> well, we're definitely, well, we're definitely revolutionizing the coverage of cryptocurrency on this very show. Uh, but look, I would say this. Bitcoin is never going to be FDIC insured, and uh, neither is Ethereum, uh, and neither are these other assets. The reality is that you know, just because it's FDIC and uh, not FDIC insured does not mean it's going to be outside of regulation. So there is a potential road here that we could walk. Your, your Facebook stock, if you own it in a Robinhood account, certainly not FDIC insured. You're not getting that out at par uh, in the event that the company crashes. So 
you know, obviously lots of theoreticals here, uh, but FDIC, very high bar. It's for deposits at U.S. banks, for U.S. persons. I don't see that happening ever in crypto. Uh, very well said and absolutely agree. Um, you guys uh, down for a viewer question or two? Let's do it. Awesome. Alrighty. This is from John G on YouTube. Will Credit Suisse's insolvency lead to another unwinding in the markets, crypto included? Ash, Dan, what are your thoughts? Obviously a busy weekend Brad. for them. Yeah. I, look, I just was sitting around like everybody else uh, watching on Twitter, all the apocalyptic stuff uh, getting tweeted out about Credit Suisse. Obviously, disclosure, my old shop. I was an assistant vice president, technical expert at Credit Suisse uh, about 20 years ago. Uh, look, the, the reality is we don't know uh, what's happening inside Credit Suisse. We know that the uh, the market is pricing the CDS. These are This is basically a bet uh, on insolvency on the bonds. Uh, so essentially, it's people taking these hedge positions or speculative positions against Credit Suisse. Uh, I don't really know. Obviously, I don't have any insights uh, into what's happening there other than what I read uh, in uh, in the Wall Street Journal like everybody else on this story. Uh, but I would say this, maybe I'll, I'll add this sort of one piece of, uh, of, uh, of context to it. Look, Credit Suisse and UBS are the two largest banks in Switzerland. They are, uh, in the words of economists, uh, national champions. The idea here is that nation states like uh, Switzerland obviously derive an incredible amount of value from having these large bulge bracket money center banks based uh, in their jurisdiction. So whether or not they are going to get a bailout from the government and some mechanism uh, to continue to prop it up, uh, which, you know, in, in that sort of case, theoretically, you, you risk uh, creating zombie banks like you have in Japan. Obviously, this is a, this is a, a very complex story. We can speculate about it here. Uh, we don't really have the facts. And in terms of uh, a Credit Suisse insolvency, which I think is what the question is about, creating uh, knock-on effects or spillovers in the crypto space, I, I don't really think Credit Suisse uh, has significant enough involvement uh, in digital assets to cause that. But I suppose the thinking here is that uh, if there were an insolvency that it could create a, a kind of knock-on effect, Hey, listen, maybe the converse is true, right? Which is if you have an insolvency uh, in the crypto, if, if you have the insolvency rather uh, in the traditional finance space, uh, maybe you get more liquidity from central banks, which actually drives up uh, the prices of digital assets and speculative assets, long duration assets more general. Uh, but look, this is obviously purely speculative as we as we talked about it. And uh, we're going to have to watch that story much more closely uh, over time to see what unfolds there, Nico. And one thing I'd add there, I'm no Credit Suisse expert. In fact, um, I don't miss that aspect of my days at Yahoo Finance where we'd have to do live shows about bank earnings when the market was good. Like, I always felt like, yeah, the earnings were great. Banks kill it, you know? But I, I will say, um, when we talk about contagion in general, something we didn't even get into today is just how much for a long time, and just recently Bitcoin is finally starting to decouple, but just the extent to which crypto was behaving in lockstep with stocks, you know, with mainstream US equities, which was alarming to people. I mean, the whole point was, wait a minute, this is a hedge, this is outside, this is separate from, you know, the rest of the markets. And then it was like, um, in the pandemic, stocks bounced back remarkably fast, crypto bounced back even stronger. And then now when things started to take a turn, crypto went uh, plummeted down off a cliff along with stocks, along with everything right now. And it's been a reminder that, you know, when there's nowhere to run and when things are really bad with the economy, crypto isn't so safe either. Hey, Nico, when uh, Dan and I were both actually at Yahoo Finance together and my my desk actually faced the place where Dan would do his hits uh, and you faked it admirably, Dan, when you were doing those bank earnings. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, 
I, I feel like the three of us, especially you two, could uh, we could all go on for about six hours, but I think this is a good place to wrap it up for today. Dan, thank you so much for joining us as our inaugural guest. We'll obviously have you and others from Decrypt Media joining us over the coming weeks and months. Don't forget to subscribe. Real Vision Crypto is free. And if you're watching on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe, hit that like button, and smash that bell. Tomorrow, we got Mark Yusko joining us for a big crypto and macro discussion. So we'll see you then tomorrow at 12 p.m. Eastern, 9 a.m. on the West Coast, 5 p.m. London, and midnight in Hong Kong, live on Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. Oh.